Welcome to a new episode of Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. In this podcast, we talk with Latinos working in the tech industry and share tools on how to take your career to the next level. If you're watching the video version of this episode, remember to like the video and subscribe to our channel. If you're listening to the audio version, you can give us five stars on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Feedback is always welcome, so you can write to us at hello at latinoswhotech.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Gabriel Golzar, welcome to Latinos Who Tech. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me. And this is not your first rodeo. You've been to the podcast a few times, and I this is the first time that we do one in English because I want to be respectful yeah. of your expertise, and I know that translating technical terms into Spanish, it's, it's a challenge unto itself. Yeah, totally. We had that on our Spanish version last, a few months ago. It was jarring. It went great. Like People gave me some good feedback on it. I think it's also... Is the reality of working in, in tech or biotechnology, in your case, that a lot of the terminology and the cutting-edge research, it's in English. The literature is in English. So we, yeah, we no. have to be bilingual because we have to. Yeah, also the day-to-day -day in this like subject, I handle it in English. So it becomes, I haven't talked science in Spanish for more than five minutes since I moved here 10 years ago. So my brain now, science is wired in English, like 99.9%. Yeah. So I wanted to start with a quick icebreaker and the movie, The Matrix. Yeah. That course. you can plug in into the system and you can learn a skill really quickly. I just by, you can just download it. You can just get the latest patch. I'm wondering if you could do that with any skill. Any skill you want can only be one. What skill would you pick? And it doesn't have to be like career oriented. It can be like, I don't know. Like a general any, skill. Any skill you want. Any skill you want. It can only be one though. So pick wisely. Yeah. Right now, in this moment, I will want to be fully fluent in Python. Like that will be like right now, like on my left screen right now my work computer i have like 300 lines of python code that i've been working for some very specific problem right now and mm -hmm. if i was like fully fluent and not like medium i think i'll i'll be done like today instead of i don't know monday or tuesday gotcha gotcha yeah no that that's fantastic that's fantastic i would love to learn how to cook efficiently you know, with the things that I have in the fridge. I have this issue that I like to cook, but I cook the same two or three things every day, every day. So I would love to be more proficient in the kitchen. I, I love to have that ability of, and some people have it, that they can just look at their pantry and their fridge and, okay, perfect. I can do this. And just takes a millisecond just to, and they can execute on it. In my case, I I, um, I get lazy. I get lazy. I know, like I, I have so many things going on that I just eat the same meal every day, pretty much. I would just, for that, I'll just, I don't think it's like a full skill. I think it's just a habit of planning. Oh. I, will, I will not say that's a skill. And it's funny because I'm like, me and my wife were also like lazy with cooking, but I do have that 
ability of look up in the pantry or the fridge and say, I'm going to do this and that and do it very quickly. And I think that comes from the experience in a lab for so many years Ah, because cooking is a lab. Yeah. It's applied chemistry essentially. Yeah. Cooking is a lab. You have to boil things. You have to set some things for a while. Like instead of spinning, you are like blending, you have to prepare your reagents. You have to cut your vegetables or your ingredients. It's the same concept. I've done, I did that for like more than a decade. So when I go to the kitchen, it's, oh, I'm back in the wet lab (laughs) and I can do it very quickly. That's fantastic. Maybe I can download the skill from you then. We can. (laughs) (laughs) My Python is not as good though. So we need to find somebody else for that. Yeah. Dr. Golzer. I'm curious about that because you got a PhD here in the U.S. And and I wanted to open up the conversation by getting your thoughts on careers in academia versus careers in industry. I'm curious on why you chose the industry path in your case. Yeah, that's a very common question. So first, when I started, when I applied and started PhD, I thought that my, my goal was going into a professorship, like stay in academia, right? And the the difference, I will say difference, the mind shift that happened was when I saw what academia was in the US or industrialized country, cutting edge research. And the, the activities that it entailed, it wasn't only like thinking about questions or like research to do or like unexplored fields in science. It was about that, but it also was about finding grant money to do mm-hmm. those experiments. And I love also, I also love teaching, but it wasn't as much about that either. Like I, I saw my, my, my PI, my advisor spend like 60% of his time just writing grant proposals to find money for the lab in governmental in like entities like NIH, like National Institutes of Health or NSF, National Science Foundation, like just looking for money was 60%. And it looking for money in academia is very different than looking for money in industry as well. Like it's not like you go an elevator pitch to a BC fund. It's like you write these long hundred pages proposals with your research that are evaluated by your peers. And that process, when I had to do it, part of my PhD program was to write a proposal as if I was going to submit. It was very painful process for me. Like mm. it landed on me, like the things that I liked, if or when I reached that like maximum level or I reached tenure as a professor would be 30% of my time. Like the 60, 70% will be things that I didn't like. So that's when it, it clicked. I don't think academia is for you. I could like, Yes, it's this is the US or like UK or Europe, this process. It I don't know how it works in other South American countries, different than Venezuela. I know how it works in Venezuela, and it's like more 30% your grant writing. And then at least when I was in Venezuela, like f- getting funding was easier. 
So you could focus on teaching, on, on like thinking about ideas or going to the field or spending time in the lab. You'll see professors doing that like a long time, like advising their undergrad and grad students, the things I like. And so I was like, I like, I didn't want to go back to Venezuela because of all the economic, political, social issues. And Maybe also I wouldn't Venezuela be able not... no, I'm kidding. It's okay. I got you. <laughs> So I, w I didn't want to go back. And this is like around 2015 when I like mm. made the decision. So I didn't want to go back. And then I was like, and I wanted to still do cutting edge science. I started researching what I could do in industry and it just clicked. And I said, yeah. And I said to my advisor, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to be a professor anymore. And this is what I wanted to do. And I think he came to terms like after after time on on that Why of he, course he wasn't too keen on it in the, the... well it's like the relationship on the phd is very like mentor mentee very close like it's your like he, he is my academic father and fathers want their kids to do the same as they, they follow did. their footsteps exactly yeah, they, they live so, curiously through you that like I never got a Fields medal, but I think you can. I think you can. I think you got it in you, or whatever. You know, exactly within your segment. Exactly. So it was like okay, yeah. So yeah, that's the reason. There are other like, but the main reason is that obviously there's a pay gap. Sadly, mm -hmm. industry there's a better better salaries. We you also have psychological component. Like academia is very tough in terms of you have to you're struggling to get tenure as you get out like first you you end up your phd and in stem you you most likely you'll have to do what's called a postdoctoral fellowship which is you spend still time training as what's shortened as a postdoc and you have a postdoc mentor and just you can do research by yourself you're no longer like you the doctor title gives you authorization to do research freely, but you still have to do more training. Like in biology, the average is five years of postdoctoral training for to them apply to professorships to then be four years in your professorship that were on a tenure track position to reach tenure. When you, once you reach your tenure evaluation, if you don't reach tenure, you'll automatically get one year like notice that you will leave in a year mm. and then so that whole pressure and then your whole career goes to goes downside because no other like research university will hire you if you got denied tenure yeah you get blackballed nope so yeah. you can go teach in a like a lower tier university or just be a lecturer not done the research so some most of the people what happen is they go to industry then oh yeah. i got i fell on tenure and they go to industry and land, land some most of them land very well mm -hmm. but all of this track with all these uncertainties there are no more universities starting like their new companies starting so the position pool is very limited therefore it's very hard yeah that like when i started to understand that as well i was like i don't want to I don't want to risk it. No, uh, that's fair. That's fair. And I think that's, that's one of the, um, when I mentor students about finding your, you know, this idea of the dream job, 
that it's it's it can be a little bit cheesy but i believe in it i believe that there's a dream job for everybody yeah and it's the right role plus the right company equals dream job and when you're selecting for that role it's about two things it's about can i do the job and do i want to do the job yeah because i'm sure that you can do the job that you can write grant proposals and you can mentor master students and PhD students, and you can do the teaching and then the politics of departments. I'm sure you can do all of that, but then it's, do you want to do that? You know, do you want to yeah. pay the price for health and all that? And because I think there's always, there are jobs out there that maybe you love 70% of the job and 20% of the job, you're like, okay. And then 10% you hate. But then if you flip those numbers, okay, run. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you get exactly. out of there. Life is too short to do jobs that we don't care about. Yeah. So tell me a bit about what you're working on now. What's this area of bioinformatics? I'm curious on what's your role and a little bit on what it entails. Yeah. So my role is senior data scientist. And we, in general, we usually think of data science in people that do machine learning, deep learning, neural networks. AI, which mm. is hot right now, but I do a little bit of that, a little bit of bioinformatics and a little bit of computational biology and the bio think of think like the formal or most accepted definition of the bioinformatics is like the people that develop the software to analyze biological data. And the computational biologists are the ones that use are using that software to answer okay. questions on like different fields of biology. And my my role is an overlap between the three. And that's why data scientist is more appropriate for in our company. We don't have computational, like we don't have bioinformaticians, we have either data scientists and some. No team has computational biologists, but we all overlap a lot. So data science is more general term. Yeah. I particularly work with genomic and transcriptomic data. Or DNA is comprised by four like components. So it, I mean, they're represented by letters, A, T, C, G. That's our DNA. We have RNA as well which has a different letter in that code, and it doesn't have the double helix that we see painted in every biology book. It's a single strand. And the, the process in the central dogma of biology, this very basic biology, DNA gets translated to RNA. And then, the, the, it's, and we call it translation because it's just like transcribing into mm, okay. a different font. So it goes into this RNA and then it goes to this RNA goes into synthesize a protein. And that's, so it's transcription, we transcribe, and then we translate to protein, which is a different language. So they're amino acids and we have 23, okay. if I got my numbers right, my biochem is 20 years old. So 23 amino acids in the basic human species. So we, tra we translate. 
So people that work in genomics focus on just that DNA. People that work in transcriptomics work what like gets into the DNA and the RNA, mostly RNA stuff. And people that work in proteomics works in the proteins, which are what the phenotype that we see, the, what, the things that give us our hair color or mm. skin pigmentation, the enzymes if we don't produce enough insulin, those kind of things, enzymes and proteins. Got it. At that level, and I work with that information, so most of my data comes in form of ATCs and Gs. Got it. And then last time we spoke, you mentioned that it, you worked in like therapy development or something along those lines. I remember that that was like the, where I had the most questions because, and again, oh, the part of my, my, the gaps in my knowledge, because I, I don't, it's not my expertise. Yeah. Because I'm curious on the solution your team or your company develops. I'm curious on what's the solution space look like? So my company Camp 4 Therapeutics focuses on developing programmable therapeutics or drugs okay. for diseases that are genetic. So let's say DNA mutations occur randomly, right? So when we're born with mutations, there are billions of ATCs and Gs in your code. And every time they're copied, when a new human being or a new animal, plant, or living beings in, in this earth is produced, there are errors, right? They're copying errors, right? So we all have mutations and some of them are neutral. Like they don't, they're not in the section of the DNA that produces a protein. Therefore, there's no effect. That's what they call junk DNA, okay. which is not junk. In our company, we call it the, the dark side of the genome, things that we don't quite understand, but they're important. Mm, God, it's kind of like an appendix, like it's there. We don't know what it does, but it's there and can get you in trouble, but yeah, just, yeah. So like we definitely, the fact that we just don't know what it doesn't mean that it can be. Yeah. It's equivalent of the dark matter, like in the universe, like physicists look for dark matter and they know that it's there, but they don't like, why is the universe so filled with dark matter? Mm -hmm. So it's, we have the same kind of problem with DNA. So let's say going back to the, the example, you have a faulty copy, some sort of neutral and some might be deleterious. They cause diseases. So there are some genetic diseases that do either produce a faulty copy of that protein at the end, so it doesn't work well. And in neurological diseases, you might have seizures since you're a baby. Some might have a late onset and you live with them and then you reach 25 years old and you start having symptoms you didn't know. Or programmable drops target those type of diseases. We want, we, or therapeutics aim to increase the production of your good copy, because we all have in most of the genes, the ones that are not in the sex chromosome in case of males, we have two copies and sometimes we can survive with just one copy up to a point when the disease reaches the onset and some appear from the beginning and you have two faulty copies and the protein works. I don't know, 30% efficiency. Okay. So our drugs try to elevate that production of either the good copy or both back copies that work well enough if they are in more quantities in our system. Replacing 
uh, chemical component that you, like an artificial chemical component that you will inject yourself. It's just elevating your own expression your own, or your own transcription or your own genes. So no genetic modification on your part. That's the goal of our company. And we do that with these regions in the dark side of the genome that are called reg RNAs, so regulator RNAs. There's some sections of the genome that can that regulate the production of those genes into proteins. So it's having the protein is your light bulb and the regulator is your dimmer. If we mm, modify we that dimmer, we can modulate and get more light depending or less depending on our needs. So my job, I'm mostly like 70% of my time is devoted into the core R&D of the company looking for those reg RNAs in the genome, in the dark side of the genome. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. And wow, there's so many things to uncover. So from a data science perspective, just from uh, model building and coding, I'm curious how your background in biology helps you when you're looking, you're doing the R&D side of things. Because I I think that you you have a, like when you have this multidisciplinary approaches, maybe your vocabulary in one of the disciplines is very high. And but then in the other one, it's kind of like lagging a little bit. So I'm curious, how do you balance that out? In the space that I work, as opposed to a data science scientist in, I don't know, Meta or Google, like the language that we use is medical and biological. Right. So all my background, like I can communicate, I can understand the issue, can understand all this jargon and all these processes, and I can translate those into coding. If you put me in a room with software engineers and data scientists from like Google or Microsoft, open AI, et cetera, like I most likely I'll have trouble understanding them. I might, I understand, I don't know, 30% of it, maybe, I don't know. But if you drop the same people with the bench scientists that I collaborate with, they most likely understand 20% or less on it. (laughs) So I feel that my biology background, because I never did computer science and or or software engineering in college, sorry or any of my courses, it comes pretty handy because Mm. I understand what they're telling me. I've been in the lab and that's something that I've been getting as a compliment since I was in my postdoctoral fellowship is that, oh, you are not like a computer science major that did like a grad school into bioinformatics, computational biology. You are biologists that learn how to code and how to solve problems and how to analyze data. So I can talk to you biology and you'll understand. I could talk to you about the lab, like how to prep this, at least DNA, what we call libraries, DNA solution that we would send to the sequencer facility that will sequence and give you all the data. I I can get 80% of their job 
I understand. Right. So I get like the whole picture from con inse conception of the experiment to the presentation, the PowerPoints that I'm making with all the plots and all the analysis already done. No, I totally agree. That's so interesting. That's so interesting how this, you can learn how to use the data science tools, the hammer, the nails, what have you, but ultimately it's not the same when you're using it in different disciplines. It's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I'm curious on then, you mentioned a little bit of your day-to-day -day, and you mentioned the bench scientists that you collaborate with. When you mean, when you say bench scientists, you mean like they're in the lab, right? Yeah, they're in the way we call the bench, the lab bench. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Sorry. So it's like industry a clean jargon room. No, it, it's okay, it's okay. So it's like a clean room environment or what does that look like? It's a lab. We don't have those, like when you see in the movies with the hazmat suits, we don't have that. That's, I think, level four. Yeah, like outbreak like, or something like, no. Yeah, we don't, we don't do that. Like they put on white coats, sometimes masks, depending if they're like, handling cell cultures themselves and they just go into the lab they have their benches with all the reagents and their expensive machines to do very specific stuff expensive toys expensive toys yes yeah don't let the vc fund hear that they're not toys <laughs> i signed a check for that no that's not a toy do you miss the lab at all or do you miss being in the lab or are you happier with the balance you have now Honestly, I don't miss it. I get enough lab from cooking <laughs> <laughs> because the lab is wonderful in the sense that, wow, it's amazing that you are starting from cells and you are able to remove all the cell structure and get with those like tiny, like molecules that are nanometers long of DNA, like that's and. There are techniques that you can also put it in a gel matrix and visualize it like C bands, like it, all those things are amazing, but like cooking, like very complex cooking. If someone like breathes wrong in the wrong place, like your final dish, it's awful. The experiment doesn't mm. work. So it has some very unique challenges that I honestly don't miss at all. Sometimes I might miss the joy of oh, this experiment, but I get the same joy when I build a pipeline for something and it, it runs. And when I get the results from the experiments that the people at the bench, the scientists at the bench just spend weeks working on, and then I can show, see this, bar plot like we see we got good distribution and we have like hundreds of potential like regions for therapeutics here that's uh, that gives me enough joy like i heard this somewhere when i was a teaching assistant during my phd make like a, i can make the data sing sing to me so it that joy, it's way more than the joy that I got from doing experiments, spending months and months doing something to, oh, it works. Like that eureka moment is lower, I guess, in the for me at the bench. Definitely. And, and it goes back to the seasons of life, right? On the maybe when I was 20 something college grad, recent college grad. Oh, yes. 
all day at the bench, debugging stuff and now have family kind of things. I do enjoy my, my, my desk jockey job, just debugging stuff. And it's, it's, it's just, I love the analysis you mentioned that finding joy in, in different things. Yeah. And funny, like the advantage of being data scientist, bioinformatician, computational biologist, whatever you want to call it, like my bench, it's my computer and it's mm -hmm. laptop. And I just need laptop, electricity, and internet, and I can do everything. And during the pandemic, it was funny because some like the, I was the beginning, I was in my postdoctoral fellowship and all the scientists were like, I cannot go into the lab or I have to take turns, like my experiments, et cetera. I cannot do anything. So they were digging all the old data from all experiments and sending to me. Now I cannot advance with this project, but I had this project on hold. Can you analyze the data for this? So people ask me like, oh, are you, are, don't you have like enough things to do? And I was like, no, I have double things to do. Everyone is digging up all the whole projects. So that flexibility of being able to work from home, like it goes from the pandemic to my current job when I'm hybrid and I can spend like my Monday just working from home. I don't have to be in the lab. The people mm. that work in the lab they kind of work from home unless they're just like making a presentation or like transcribing their lab notes into the system. I can do the whole thing remotely. And that flexibility, I also really enjoy. That's great. That's great. And how, how do you work it out? Are you three days in, two days in? Do you choose? How do you work it out in your particular situation? My, my company, I like kudos to us that we are very flexible for the people that like me that can do 100% of your job but there's an encouragement to go to the office and encouragement like with snacks and other stuff like the free common in startups yeah. but it's real to foster collaboration because you have a section very important section of the company which are the scientists at the bench that can't work from home so there are five days and sometimes they go into weekends as well, five days there at the office. And so I love to go every week, at least two days, because those conversations, those water cooler conversations are very important for that tight collaboration between the, the wet or bench scientists, so-called so wet and the dry, the computational scientist. So it's, I, I honestly go two or three days, depending on the week, depending on meetings mm. to the office and have that, those water cooler conversations, those meetings, those whiteboard meetings that trying to explain to the non-computational people, like this is, this one, what I'm stuck with, is there a biological reason or a thing like experimental reason why this is not working on my end? And those things work way better in person. Definitely. I agree. Like I come from a technical marketing background. So when it comes to brainstorming and just coming up with the messaging and all those things, yeah, you can't beat in person. There's no amount of tools like Miro or what have you that can replace that for me, for me. And that's, I can only speak from my experience, but, uh, and that whiteboarding part that 
there's something about just sketching everything out with people next to you and then just like taking a step back, a literal step back. Yeah, that, that's that's special. Yeah. I'm curious on how do you stay up to date? Do you stay up to date on the data science piece of things or biology for that matter? You mentioned that in academia you have the postdoc and people read papers and publications. Is there any of that in your current role? Yeah. We like we do almost exact same things. Like I compare my people ask me like what's when they're thinking of like leaving academia, like what difference are in your day-to-day -day life with the postdoc life and with the industry job life. And it's 80% the same. I read mm. papers. I sometimes we write papers, even as a company, like we want our work to be reviewed by our peers, by your scientific peers, both in academia or in industry too, because that gives us credibility of what we're doing. Yeah. And so we publish papers read papers we or data science meetings every other week we have journal club like we stay up to date with for example we've been having of course a streak of llms papers like large language model papers to apply to genetics for example and we've been reading papers looking which tools publish can help us either answer a current question that we have within our, our pipeline or business model or create new avenues for to get to that summit that our company wants to reach. Got it. And I want to switch over to the mentoring side of things. But before sure. we do that, I'm curious on if you have anything else you wanted to add about CAM4 and the products you guys make, your day-to-day, -day. anything else you wanted to share about that before? We're a startup. We just think we just did Series B this year. So we don't have any products yet. We're in the process of submitting stuff to the FDA. And the difference with like tech startups or it's like you can have a product within months and in the market, right? You can have an app or a software being developed in a matter of months. We have to go through years uh, mm. to go through FDA, phase one, phase two, phase three. Now everyone is more, after the pandemic, everyone's more like aware of those timelines because it's like the vaccines were like expedited through this hurdle. We don't work in that space. We're not longer in a pandemic. We're in an endemic now with COVID. So there's no like expedition. So process, like we could have a product in, I don't know, hopefully 2030 on the shelves, Got but it. that product will change thousands of people's lives. So it's long, like a long-term investment as a company, but very rewarding, both of course, financially, because it's ha it has to be, but also yeah, we have to keep the lights on and exactly, yeah. but also impacting the health of those patients is very rewarding as well. Of course. And I think that's very helpful that people are aware of those timelines because it can come down to personality because people have informational interviews about what kind of job do you want to do. And, and like, personally, I know a lot of civil engineers that part of the reason why they became civil engineers is because, oh, look at the building I made or look at the house I made or look at the highway I made or the subway, I made, whatever. 
but they need that validation. So it takes a different personality to be able to have that delay gratification and knowing that, okay, like, it's not that I love looking at the product and I feel proud of what we accomplished, but it's more about the questions themselves and the research and the day-to-day -day work. So it's a very different personality. Mindset. It's mindset, a, it's yes. a totally different mindset. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So be warned, whoever's listening to this, the two, three people that listen to this, that bioinformatics sounds cool. Yes. But are you willing to put the work, wait? So no, that's great. So let's talk about mentoring and your work with the Universidad Simón Bolívar Alumni Association. I'm curious on that side because we... People know, I met you through, through that organization and your work there, and we've done episodes in Spanish. So I'm curious if you can share for this English-speaking audience a little bit of what's the Alumni Association, what do you guys do, and all that. Yeah, so the legal term, legal name, Universidad Simón Bolívar Alumni Association of America, it's a nonprofit charity. It's a, it's a company. We're a 501c3 charity by IRS determination. And our goal is to, for short, we're called alum USB. Our goal is to support the academic activities of Universidades in Bolivar in Caracas, Venezuela. There are other Universidades in Bolivar in other South American countries. Of course, Simón Bolivar, very important uh, <laughs> person in history of South America, but the one in Venezuela where I attended undergrad and master's it we support its academic endeavor it's a public university in venezuela to reiterate the political economical social hardship that's been going on in venezuela for decades it has impacted the activities of the university and we basically fundraise to to help and we fundraise and we have several programs one for sending equipment to update equipments in labs, in offices, in classrooms, infrastructure to keep the lights on. Literally, we donated hundreds of lights for classrooms and hallways the this beginning of this year. And the two programs that are most that connect to mentorship, one connects to mentorship, the other one, not so much, are the ones that impact the, the professors, the faculty, and the students directly. We have a scholarship program for students that are have high GPA and a low income. So they're, they have a high academic performance. They come from low income households. And we basically give them a scholarship to complete. So they don't abandon their studies yeah. to, because they have to work to, to eat or support their families. And there's some mentorship component in there. And I would like to, to make a plug here, a marketing plug here. This is your space, man. Do it. Okay. <laughs> so if you want to support a student in Venezuela, a higher education student, or scholarships for students from the Universidad de Bolívar, if you donate the amount that's equivalent to their scholarship for a month, currently the scholarship is just $50 a month. And 50, 50, 50, zero. $50 a month is enough for them to improve their living situation while they're studying. If you 
make a recurrent donation on your credit card, PayPal website, we will connect you to a student so you can be his or her mentor. And it's, it has been a program that it's, it's very, not only the part like we give the money and the students graduate and we have in our YouTube channel, we have several videos like testimonials of them, how the scholarship changed their lives at that moment that they're graduating and they want to thank everybody, but specifically the mentorship, the connection that you can develop with a student that it, we try to pair you with the right, like the, in the right field. Like I wouldn't mentor mechanical engineering students. I know yeah. anything, I don't know anything. But it, but we have like from most of STEM fields and interests, students from our scholarship that you can mentor. And we see people that their mentors have helped them to find graduate school scholarships outside of Venezuela to continue their education. We've seen mentors that have helped their development, not only throughout, but after graduation. So there, there is a mentorship component there. We also have a program that's similar for that scholarships, but are teaching awards for the faculty because faculty in Venezuela make $20 a month. So we have a, like a award in cash that goes to them. Depending on their metrics, we evaluate metrics because we don't, sadly, we don't have money to award every faculty. Mm -hmm. So we have to select the ones that contribute the, more to the university's mission. And yeah, that has in their words, keeps the lights on in some of their classrooms. They haven't quick because of that. They have money to have medical insurance. So those stories, especially with the students, I mean, inadvertently getting mentees because of the connection, the ones that are in biology and all of these interactions, I have gained a few mentees, like uninformal mentees that I have been proud of advice in their, like in their life as a student, but also afterwards. Yeah. No, and anything helps. Anything helps. Even answering a question or two or like a mentor mentee, it doesn't have to be an ongoing thing. It doesn't have to steal money. It's still time from your big weekly schedule. Just like being available, I find that helps a lot of people. Sometimes people have an idea of what they want to do with grad school or industry, and they just want to, they want somebody that knows them that they can bounce ideas. Off. Yes. Hey, I have this offer, PhDs in San Diego. I have this PhD offer. It's in Boston. Gabriel, you're in the industry. What do you think? And help them with those decisions because, yeah, it's hard to go get those questions, answer those questions from people like your parents, maybe if they never studied in the U.S. or never worked in the U.S. It's difficult. So I find that the professionals that we have in this community, Latinos Who Tech, that we have this experience that is so that, yeah, I find that we can add value especially to, to those students. Yeah, totally. I have conversations about how to, oh, how did you came to do your PhD? Like mm -hmm. there are concerns about finances, about language, is my English good enough? Those things. And it's very, I didn't have, I just have one, yeah. one friend that 
he was to he when I moved here, he was already on his third year, I think, of his PhD at MIT. We graduate together from undergrad. I stayed for the master's. He left immediately for the PhD. And I went to him during the whole process because I didn't know. And no one was there that, that did the process at this day and age because things are changing faster than ever. So yeah. even if I had a mentor in Venezuela that went through the PhD route in the US 20 years before me, it's different. Yeah. So those connections are very valuable in the sense, even though if you have an older mentor, you need to have diversity in your mentorship as well. Yeah, you know, and it's a two-way street. So it's a two-way street. And I'm sure that somebody that has 20 years of experience has questions about, hey, what, the new tools people use, social media and what have you, or, hey, I'm doing this presentation. How can I make it more engaging to people in your cohort? Yeah. All kinds of things. So it's a two-way street. We can all learn from each other. Exactly. Yeah. Gary, you've been very generous with your time. I want to say thank you for taking time from your busy Friday and taking you away from your code. Anything else you wanted to share? Anything else you wanted to share with us and this audience of Latinos Intact? Well, thank you for the space. And I'm, a, I'm available if someone wants to ask a question and someone is interested in getting into like computational biology and they come from a computer science software background so yeah i can you i, I think you can put it like links to your, yeah, yeah, to, uh, your info to the show notes the, your, your linkedin, LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. yeah i'm LinkedIn. always happy if you connect and this is a networking advice if you connect with me and you don't you you leave the message blank and I don't have anyone in common or just one person, I won't read it. So my recommendation is always if you request connection, put a message personalized. Oh hey, I for example in this case I was I'm inter I saw your interview Latinos with Tech. I wanna talk more, I wanna connect, and I'll gladly accept and we can start a conversation there. I have you sent someone my way that works in biotech. Came. Was it? I think so. Yeah, we had a nice call and she was very keen. She had a, like all the questions already laying down. And yeah, I like, I hope that my, like the 45 minutes that we spoke was useful for her. I think they were, but I hope. And yeah, this is a, like a very, we need to stick together. Like we Yeah, no, definitely. And that's why I like to make add some variety to it because I have, my network is mostly Microsoft, LinkedIn, Intel people. And I like to make space for these more niche topics because again, it's important. And maybe when like when I have a conversation with somebody from Google, yes, like they, he gets twenty five messages and or something like that because everybody wants to work at Google. <laughs> and but then it's like you get one like to me that's good enough that like we are there's somebody that gets value from this but somebody that actually hey that want to break into this space yeah, yeah. so no Gabriel, thank you so much very insightful conversation and uh, yeah i'll add your info to the show notes people can follow up with you and again Thank you so much. Always, this space is for you. So anytime you want to come and share something from your expertise or door is open. 
Thank you. Thank you for, for the invitation and for your time as well.